High King of heaven, we praise you and thank you that we can come into your presence in these moments to actually hear from you, from your word, as you teach us about the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. We pray, Father, that we would gain a sense of his love and also of his mercy, but especially of the joy he took in providing salvation for each one of us. And we will delight and take pleasure in all that he has provided. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we were young. At the time, Jean was pregnant with our first child, who was Matthew, and we were in Columbus, Ohio, and we were at the obstetrician's office in the evening, which is an unusual time to be in an obstetrician's office, but the entire childbirth class was there. It was not the usual childbirth class because the obstetrician himself was there. I believe his name was Dr. Brian, as I recall, and he had come to the childbirth class to do things like answer anybody's questions and to encourage these young women who were about to give birth. And just for the record, no, there were no birthing persons there. These were real women, real pregnant women, and their supportive husbands, by the way, real men, and there probably were some also uh, some birthing coaches, some uh, other women who may have been there to support as well, but it was the entire childbirth class and meeting with the obstetrician. I don't remember much about what Dr. Brian said to the class, but I do remember one thing that he said. He was talking, you see, about anesthetics, about drugs. He was talking about pain management during the birthing process. And at that time, as you uh, might have imagined, there was growing interest in having childbirth be as natural as possible, with as few painkillers as possible. Minimize the drugs as much as you can. Uh, but Dr. Bryan had delivered, I don't know, dozens, maybe even hundreds of babies by that point in his career. He had, he had seen these dear women in all kinds of circumstances. And the one thing that I remember that he said on that occasion was that if he was a woman and he was pregnant, they would have had to put him under as soon as he found out he was pregnant. <laughs> How's that for an encouraging word to these women? It is really amazing what women go through in order to have a baby, isn't it? Of course, all of this was predicted all the way back in Genesis. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, uh, God said to the woman following the fall. I don't know exactly when or why fathers started to be allowed into delivery rooms. Maybe it was to support their wives who were in the midst of excruciating pain and they were beginning to curse anything and everything they could see. Why shouldn't the husband be on the receiving end of some of that? I don't know. By the way, none of that that the mothers said would be remembered by them afterwards, I'm told. 
But the fathers may have been invited just so that we would realize what our dear wives actually had to go through in order to deliver the little precious apples of our eyes. Why are women willing to go through the incredible pain of childbearing? Someone, a man, once said he knew why women would be willing to go through childbearing. What he couldn't understand is that why they would be willing to go through it again. (laughs) Of course, we know the answer to that issue. And that is at the end of this incredible ordeal, there is a baby. There is a reward, an outcome, a, a, a prize. And mothers know, I think all of us know, that that baby is worth it. It's worth whatever the women have to go through because the child is a miracle of creation, made in the image of God with all of the physical equipment with which to adapt to this strange world into which he or she has been dropped, hardwired with all the growth potential to become a a fully functioning adult, a contributing citizen, an amazing being, unlike actually the offspring of any other creature in many ways. And we appreciate that miracle, even if they do have to be teenagers for a while. In our communion series, we've been exploring the classic text in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the servant of the Lord hymns in Isaiah, or the servant of Yahweh hymns. The series is entitled, The Suffering Servant. And the same question needs to be asked, why was the servant, who we learn is the incarnate Son of God, why was the servant willing to go through his suffering? Suffering which was even more excruciating than anything a woman in labor would ever experience. Was there an outcome, a result, a reward for the servant of the Lord? In our series, verse by verse, we've been examining a number of the dimensions of the servant of the Lord's ministry. We looked at the servant's gospel, the good news that God was sending his servant for us. We talked about the great exchange, his righteousness for our sin. We mentioned the servant's redemption, how his suffering purchased us out of the slave market of sin and and freed us from bondage. We saw in this passage the servant's message, how his life and ministry declared that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We saw the servant's incarnation, how the only way for God to secure our redemption was for him to send himself in his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. We saw him as the man of sorrows, examine the excruciating suffering he had to endure and how he identified with whatever sorrows any human could ever encounter. We saw his servant's substitution, how he stood in for us, took our place, receiving the just punishment for our sin. We recognized the servant's burden, how he carried the weight of our sinful world in his person. We examined the servant's silence, how he was unwilling to protest the injustice of his suffering and its execution. And he saw, we saw the servant's oppression, how he was attacked by his enemies, even from the religious leaders who should have been his greatest supporters. We looked at the servant's innocence, how he deserved none 
absolutely none of the suffering that he endured. And finally, we looked at the servant's offering, how his life and death in our place provided the only offering for sin that could satisfy the just demands of a holy God. That's what we have seen thus far in Isaiah 53. This morning, we will try to discover why the servant of Yahweh was willing to go through all of that suffering. Was there an outcome, a result, was there a reward that made it all worthwhile? It's entitled, The Servant's Satisfaction. And our text is Isaiah 53:11. the first phrase in that verse, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The more you study the Bible, the more you realize that in many ways the Bible is filled with paradoxes. A paradox is a pair of propositions or concepts that appear to be contradictory. And the key word there is appear, that because once the paradox is examined and investigated, the apparent contradiction turns out to be no contradiction at all. In fact, I'm convinced that the Word of God includes many paradoxes because they force us to more fully examine the key issues about God and about the Christian life and, and lead ultimately to a greater understanding of the nature of God as well as the nature of our spiritual journey in Christ. Let me give you some examples of paradoxes. One of them is the role of faith and works in the Christian life. And Paul says in Romans 3, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works. James, on the other hand, says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Appears to be a contradiction, doesn't it? But we're compelled to study the matter further, and when we do, we discover that Paul and James are using the same vocabulary to talk about two different things. So for Paul, justification means to be declared righteous before God. For James, justification is to be shown to have genuine faith before humanity, before others. And so it's no contradiction at all. Another paradox is the life of faith. Is it easy or is it hard? Jesus says in Matthew 11, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus also says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So again, we're compelled to examine the issue. We discover that the life of faith is easy in the sense that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation before the altogether righteous God. But that in itself is hard for us to swallow because you see, we're proud and we're convinced that we, we have to do something. And not only that, it's, it all requires us to be, to be humble, to admit to God that, and to ourselves that we are debtors who cannot pay our debts. And that's hard to admit, and that's why so few get it. Another one is, should Christians engage in judgment? Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. But he also says in John chapter 7, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So should we judge or not? And if so, how? It seems to be a paradox. And we learn that there is a difference between being judgmental, that is judging others before we have taken the time to judge ourselves, and then using good spiritual discernment. So the Bible is filled with paradoxes like that and many others. And the one we have before us is a big one. And that is this, that the suffering servant is the happy servant. The suffering servant is the happy servant. 
Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But then in John 15, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus was a joyful servant. And then in John 17, he prays this, but now I am coming to you, to the Father, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Jesus was joyful. He was a joyful servant. How is it that the suffering servant is the joyful servant, the happy servant? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be, he shall see and be satisfied. That's our verse. There are five elements in this verse, all critically important for us to understand how the suffering servant can be the happy servant. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of is not inconsequential in this Hebrew construction or Greek construction. It ties together each of the other key elements. The servant's anguish is not unrelated to the servant's satisfaction. In fact, it is out of the servant's anguish that the servant is satisfied. The anguish is the source of the servant's satisfaction, even the formal cause of his satisfaction. There is no anguish. The servant is not satisfied. It is said that there is nothing lost in God's economy, that every event, every circumstance, every relationship, everything is used by God to accomplish his purposes. You know Romans 8:28 very well. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God works, you see, all things together for good. And as best as I can figure it out in my endless study of the matter, all things means all things. Is, am I going too fast? Did you get it? So it is not that the spirit is joyful or satisfied or happy or blessed in spite of his anguish, like some kind of stoicism. No, he is joyful or satisfied or happy or blessed because of his anguish, because out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. It hasn't been that long ago that we went through Holy Week together and we had our Good Friday service and we explored the suffering of the servant. We recounted the, the events on the Via Della Rosa, uh, the false accusations in the trials, the beatings, the rejection, the, the carrying of his own cross until he couldn't carry it anymore, the crown of thorns, the nails in his hands and feet, being stripped naked, his clothes, the object of games of chance, the excruciating crucifixion itself. In our study of the man of sorrows in Isaiah 53, we learned that he was despised and he was rejected, that he was revulsed and he was devalued. Imagine ladies having to give birth with all of those additional attacks, super added, multiplying injury and insult to the normal pain of childbirth. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of the anguish of his soul, it was the anguish of his soul that was the most excruciating. 
the soul. Now, I, I know that it's possible in reading the text of Scripture to find that the word soul is used as a synecdoche. Okay, I'm not even going to ask you to try to say that. Synecdoche. Not Schenectady. That's a city in New York. It's synecdoche. Uh, that's, a, that's a figure of speech in which a part represents the whole of something. And sometimes it's used that way. The soul means the whole person. So when they said so many thousand plus people perished on the Titanic, someone would say so many souls perished. They weren't just talking about souls. They were talking about whole people died. But I don't think that's what the, that works in this particular construction. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. If it simply means himself, the whole person, it would just have read out of his anguish, he shall see and be satisfied. I think it means the soul is in the mind, the will, and the emotions of our Savior. We so much think of the sufferings of the suffering servant in physical terms, the beatings and the crucifixion itself, the physically excruciating. That's what came out years ago when Bell Gibson produced his movie, The Passion of the Christ. If you watch that, bless you. It was, the bloodletting was awful. It was the physical suffering that was the main issue. And my main criticism of that movie was that it, it did not adequately show his soul suffering, the soul suffering of the Christ. The immaterial, spiritual anguish, not only of his rejection by his enemies, the religious leaders, not only of the betrayal by Judas and, and the denial by Peter, but mainly the turning of the back of his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The moment I believe that the servant experienced hell itself, Nothing more excruciating than that kind of soul suffering beyond anything physical. It started, as you know, in Gethsemane as he, as he looked into the cup of the wrath of God and pleaded with God, if there be any other way, yet not my will, but yours be done. And he sweat as if it were great drops of blood because out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The anguish of his mind and his will and his emotions far outweighed, in my estimation, his physical sufferings. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The fact that out of his soul's anguish he shall see is itself a, a wonderful, astonishing statement. His soul's anguish would lead to death, but if he shall see, there must be be a resurrection. There must. Isaiah prophesies, you see, the resurrection of the servant of the Lord in that little phrase, he shall see. The idea is not absent, as you know, from the Hebrew Bible. Job chapter 19, verse 26, a well-known statement that Job says, he says, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job is expecting to be resurrected after my skin has thus been destroyed, after he's saying, I'm dead. Not just, not just partly dead, but entirely dead. After I'm dead, I shall in my flesh see God. So Job, whether he realized it or not, was 
prophesying a resurrection. And in fact, the servant of the Lord, the fact that he can see anything is enough to lift one's spirit because he's prophesying the resurrection of himself. The spirit of the servant of the Lord especially is lifted up in that simple phrase. Some manuscripts that are ancient say, and he shall see light, or he shall see the light of life. The servant's story, you see, does not end in darkness. It does not end in ultimate destruction. It does not end in despair. It ends in light. And you remember the gospel of, of John. You, do you remember the gospel of John? We spent like six years in the gospel of John. You ought to remember it. I know it was a long time ago in which you studied the first chapter, in which you read, in him was life, and the life was what? the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And then in John chapter 8, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Listen to this, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says in John chapter 12, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And then Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. What does, what does he see? What does the servant, the suffering servant see when he is raised from the dead and is able to see? What does he see? He sees you. He sees you, you, the sons of light. You are the light of the world. That's what he sees. We've already actually seen it in our study of Isaiah. In the very last verse we studied, verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall see you. He will hold the baby. That's what he will do. And it will all be worth it because out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And be satisfied. Satisfied in Hebrew carries the notion of fullness. Its root is used in the context of being filled after having eaten. It gives us a sense of contentment that nothing more is necessary. We, we say, how are you? And we answer, I'm fine. Lying many times. I'm fine, even though we seem to find all kinds of reasons to complain. But not in this case. How are you? How are you, Jesus? How are you, servant of the Lord? How are you, suffering servant? How are you? Jesus, I, I am absolutely and definitively the most satisfied being in the universe. That's the answer of our Savior. There is not one thing, Jesus says, that I desire. I have everything I could ever want. He says, because I have you. I see the light of life. Revelation 7, verse 9 and following, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus says, I have everything I want because that's who I see. I see the multitude of all of those who are the sons of light, who have been redeemed by the death of the servant of the Lord, because out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be 
satisfied. Our Savior is a happy sufferer. He is completely satisfied because his suffering has borne fruit. John 6 says this in verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day. In John 17, verse 12, Jesus prays, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Dear friends, the servant is satisfied. Listen, the servant is satisfied because all of those whom the father has given him, he has saved them all. That's what the text tells us. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Not one has been lost. He, and he sees every one. Okay? The, the multitude could not be numbered, but he has numbered and named every single one. There is no hand-wringing by our Savior in heaven now. There are no regrets, no coulda, shoulda, wouldas. In the servant's mind, none of that. No, the servant is satisfied. Everything he came to do, he has done. And that's why the author of Hebrews says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen, for the joy set before him. Did you hear that? For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I would add with a smile on his face and with joy in his heart, because he is the satisfied servant. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to come to this table, may we be struck by this paradox that we are remembering the death of the Savior on our behalf but at the same time recognizing that the Savior was willing to go through all of that for the joy set before him so that he would see his offspring, the sons of light, and that he would be satisfied, that he would be blessed in the sight. And so help us with joy to enter into this communion together. In Jesus' name, amen.